This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Chris Knapp, an instructor and one of the founders of Maine Local Living School, a homestead and education center in Temple, Maine. In this conversation, Chris shares how he came to develop a deep love for the land and creating a connection to the place he calls home. This is an experience he seeks to share with each of his students, whether school-aged children, young adults transitioning to adulthood, or adults seeking a change in their path on their journey through life. As each of us comes to permaculture from different directions, I hope you'll enjoy this time with Chris and how whether you're an instructor, a designer, or someone new to permaculture, that you can find ways to connect with others who are interested in this form of ecological design. After you spend this time with me and Chris, I'll join you again. I guess if I was to really think about how I came to be doing what I'm doing right now, I would start pretty early in my childhood. I would start on a hiking trip when I was 13 years old, and I was planning on going with a bunch of friends on the Appalachian Trail. And for one reason or another, nobody else was able to go last minute. And there I was on my own, and I decided to go, and my parents said that was fine. And it was a 10-day trip. And a few amazing things happened. One of them was my stove broke, and I got really nervous thinking, how am I going to eat? Because I was traveling in the very modern context with my little whisper light stove and my backpack and everything. I carried with me the industrial world. And my stove broke, and I was at a caretaker's space there on the Appalachian Trail. And I asked this gentleman there, who was the caretaker, if he could help me fix it. And he sized me up and he's like, all right, young kid, pretty nervous. He was very nice. I can help you. I can help you fix that. And then he said, but God forbid you have to make a fire. And it took me a while. I was walking back towards my camp. I was looking at all these dry branches in that high country where there's fir and spruce. I was looking at all that wood and I thought, wow, he's right. And it was when a light bulb went off and I thought, wow, I'm just traveling along in this world and I'm a total alien and I want to know how to live here. And it began a journey for me that led me in some books like Ewell Gibbons' Stalking the Wild Asparagus, when I started to look around and recognize the ecology around me as something that could feed me. And then led me into some other books like Tom Brown, when I discovered these stories of people really connecting with traditional knowledge and ways of being. And all of that felt like an underground path because I didn't know that anyone else was thinking these thoughts, but it, the earth was calling me. And there was feelings that I had, connections that were being made that I couldn't really explain, but I knew it was important. And I knew it was exciting. And I remember actually at the end of that trip, when he asked me, God forbid, (laughs) if you had to make a fire, I remember sitting by a stream and watching a leaf circle around. And I realized I was completely quiet in my mind, 100%. And it was surprising and it was magical. And I think I spent the rest of high school looking for that. And it wasn't a journey of substances. It sounds like it might be. But I was looking for that that quiet, that magic, that peace. And an important part of that story is that it led me to a gap year program, essentially. I didn't know it was then a gap year. I didn't call it that. But I went across the ocean to Norway, and I went to a folk high school. And Norway has this amazing system, which there's an underground movement to make again here and an above ground movement. The folk high school system in Norway is amazing. And I participated in it 
as a 17 year old. And the, the beauty about that year for me, when I arrived there at this school that held sort of a combination of old Norse culture, like boat building and farming and dairy, but also interaction with the Sami people who are the first peoples in that part of the world, was I realized that, holy smokes, I don't know anything. And I arrived there thinking I knew a fair bit. I arrived there thinking, well, I've been on all these long hiking trips by myself, and I have all this great connection with the sound of the wind and the spruce. And I, <laughs> and I realized, oh my God, I don't know anything. And so that was great. And I began a learning journey there about sharpening and tool use and crafting and creating. And oh, it just sucked me in. And I was up late at night every night and working on tanning hides and sewing mittens and making snowshoes. And I gave myself tendonitis, which is another part of the journey, which was a huge emotional hurdle for me because I was so scared of not being able to live what I was feeling was calling to me. So I returned from that experience very excited to go farther. And I had in my mind that I was looking for a mentor and a place to live, a place to learn, a place to build some kind of home from the earth. Everything for me in that stage of life, and I feel a little foolish or embarrassed, but it was all about earth connection and me. I wasn't thinking about community. I wasn't thinking about the larger context. I was in my last of my teenage years, self-centered and just passionate about understanding what it is to live from a place, to fully connect with, to listen to, to understand the beings of a place and to be a part of them. And that was just driving me. So I ended up in an apprenticeship in Maine. I spent the summer with this wonderful man who was a lobster man, Dan Fisher, and I was on his land and I built a little birch bark shelter and was living there. And he said, there's an elder in our community who I think you should meet. And he said, he's building a lodge in the style of the Cree people up by the Canadian border. And I think he's building this. He's looking for help. You should go help him out. And so I, I said, sure. And I went. And that was the first time that I met Ray Reitze, who became a very important teacher. And on that week of helping him build in the Northwoods of Maine, I listened to his stories. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is the person. Because his stories were so real. And he was real. And he was so calm and peaceful and happy and his eyes were sparkling so he has an interesting story which is a lot like the story if people are familiar with the story of tom brown and stalking wolf when ray was a boy in buxton maine there was an elder from the Mi'kmaq people who lived on the back edge of his family's farm and he was chosen of sorts he was chosen for this man to just share his life, all of his wanderings. He wandered all of North America on foot. At this time of total heartbreak and cultural disintegration from all of the forces of colonization, he had wandered all of North America looking for common truths between the peoples and had spent time with elders all over and then had settled in Buxton, Maine. And when Ray came along, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share what I can with this boy. And he took him on under his wing for about nine years before he left this earth. And he was in his 90s at that point. So it made this young boy somebody who he could no longer be 
a part of the dominant culture. And for much of his adult life, he was searching for how does what I experienced with him have anything to do with what this world looks like and the messages I'm receiving from this world. But then a little later on, there started to be an opening. He found his guide's license, started guiding and realized from there he could teach and realized from there that the world was extremely hungry in the early 80s, 90s for what it was that he was holding. And so I discovered Ray and I was hungry and I just said, can I do anything to stay with you? And he said, sure. And he welcomed me into a six-year apprenticeship, which was life-changing. So maybe that's a lot of a ramble, but it's, I came to be where we are now. It speaks to so many of us have these paths that when we look back across the arrow of time, they can seem so straight or linear. But when we dive into the story of how certain thoughts were planted as seeds and what we did to water and fertilize them over time so they grew into something more, that there is this depth to those experiences and that it very often was not quite as straight as we might have thought <laughs> along the way. I will say it's funny your mention of the Norwegian folk school and that gap year because I always forget that a friend of mine is fluent in Norwegian because they heard about that experience and left the U.S. when they were also 17. And I think he spent two years in Norway and he talked about how like they would get like these vans and paint them bright colors and travel from place to place, learning and working and doing all of these other acts of service in order to learn and meet people along the way during that year. And that was part of his story and his experience. Wow. Yeah, yeah very different from mine. I was at this little school that was focused on traditional boat building, organic agriculture, and something they call freeless leave, which is relates to living free with what is around you in nature. And that was my course of study, which was definitely the right course of study for me in that moment. And then from there and this time with Ray, how did you move from there to where you are now with the main local living school? Was it taking all of those ideas and wanting to continue to pass them on? Was there another opportunity arose that led you in this direction? How did that all come together? Somehow, when I left Norway, I remember climbing down off of Blah Heil, this big mountain behind the school, and I had this vision in my head of continuing this learning process that I was at that point so committed to. And then in five years, that was my timeline, starting a school. And there was no way I was going to be ready in five years. But at that point, it sounded reasonable. So I had already some vision of an educational center and then when I sp started spending time with Ray, he, would, he was a teacher in all ways. So both as a guide, when he was guiding canoe trips, he was always teaching. And, but he also would go into the local schools. And I remember going into the schools with him and say I'd been working on a basket woven of root. He would just hand the basket to me and say, Chris, talk about the basket. And I realized, oh, this is actually fun. I like sharing with kids. And then... Another organization, Croca Expeditions, hired Ray to do a week-long program. And so they brought a group of sort of 12, 13-year-old kids to his farm and homestead in Canaan, Maine. And we had a whole curriculum that week of all the skills of living with that place. And my now wife, who was also an apprentice there, 
and I ended up leading that week. Ray just turned it over to us. He said, you teach them. This is really living in you. You teach them. (laughs) And so we did this week totally unplanned on, and we loved it. That was the beginning of my, really, it has been my whole career, 20 years in environmental education. I ended up working a lot with that organization, Croke Expeditions, and designing some programming for them for their summer trips, and then leading their first winter semester, which is a five-month program. And my wife and I led that, the second part of that together, so three months. And then the next year, we led it in its entirety. And it was easily the most, we hadn't had kids yet. We hadn't, (laughs) we were pretty young. And it was definitely the most amazing experience of our life thus far. To take under your wing a group of young people like that and travel together and learn from each other and develop community together and to share the world that you love best was just an incredible opportunity and opened my eyes to the potential of that form of immersive learning in community and outdoors. And then you have a homestead site where you're doing this in person with people who range in age from grade school and high school to university immersions. How did you come to the land that you're on and starting and building up this space where people can come to you and have these kinds of experiences? So for a little while, we thought that, and I say we because Ray had an apprentice and we got married while living there on his land. And she was an apprentice of him for many years, six years. And so we had this sort of common story together and we ended up together. And we thought for a little while about continuing to build what he had started, but it wasn't the right scenario. There were other people involved with vested interest in that land that was very different than ours. And we realized that it wasn't the space where we could really unfold the vision that was in our hearts. And so we started looking west towards, <laughs> still within the state of Maine, and never any thought about leaving the state, but looking towards the foothills, and we started looking for land. And geez, I think it's good to just be vulnerable and say, yeah, we had help buying this land. So we sit upon 120 acres of incredible forested mixed hardwood with but a lot of diversity, some cedar bogs, brown ash, swamp. We had help from my family purchasing this land. They came to terms with the fact that I'd been six years learning with Ray and I wasn't about to pursue higher education and they would help us with this vision. And that was a huge jump forward. And from there, we were able to really just work under our own means and creating this place from this place. But that's how we came to be here in Temple, Maine. And of course, we don't own this land in the true sense. We own it legally, but we're here working with the gifts, working with all the people of this place, and that's our work. And then as I follow then, once you came to the land using all of these skills and knowledge that you gained and aggregated over the years, that's when you started your school programs and doing the immersions for younger children? So we came here in 2004. In 2008, we started Maine Local Living School, and it was really just a community effort offering weekend classes and anything that felt exciting, like making fruit leather from mashed up berries dried in the sun, or making a rocket stove out of tin cans, or making a basket, or a big wild edibles 
bonanza or fermentation day. So we started with these small classes and we continued our work with the school systems and we were trying to expand that a little bit. But it took time. We were starting here with an incredible opportunity and also an incredible amount of work to be done. And I'm someone who loves work and can be totally consumed by work and sucked into work. And so that was a good scenario. And also, at times I had my head in the sand, could you say, (laughs) because this place just consumed me and the vision of what I thought it could become. So many thousands of hours. But the transformation began to happen. And suddenly, where there had been some wet spots in the woods and a few little bits of flat ground on a hilly, never been farmed landscape, there was suddenly some really thriving gardens, some chestnut trees and apple orchard. And we built right from the beginning spaces for people, a beautiful composting outhouse for the public to use. A root cellar was the second building after building a log cabin to live in. We built a root cellar. And then following through with what I'd learned in Norway from the Sami, building a lodge of the type that we then saw the parallel between the Cree and the Sami, as we had learned this Cree dwelling from Ray. And we built one of those here for apprentices to live in. And suddenly it started to feel like, oh, there's a little campus here. There's something happening. I think that I want to mention right now because of the culture that we exist in and because of the very hard history that is part of our story, I want to mention where we sit in this realm of appropriation, cultural appropriation, because I'm mentioning words that definitely come from different first peoples, either here or across the ocean. And I feel like traditional ecological knowledge came to us in a very natural way flowing through Ray because he had this experience with his elder. And in that time of my life, I had no consciousness that would be a disputable or an uncomfortable relationship with this knowledge or that it would be considered appropriation to practice making a brown ash basket, for example. And now understanding more and thinking more and more about what it is that we do and what it is that we bring. Here's where we're at with the situation. Traditional ecological knowledge, I really feel, is rooted in listening and in observation. And we recognize that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And these giants are partly the ancestors of this land. And also because this place is a bit of a melting pot, Maine Local Living School, it's also the ancestors of And the people in Austria who figured out how to smith the amazing scythe that's a part of our land management system here, or also the ancestors of the people of Korea who figured out how to make kimchi and turn these vegetables in your garden to something that will last an entire year. So we recognize that all of this incredible knowledge is sourced from our past and that we stand in gratitude and in awe of the people who did those thousands of years of listening to place and developing technologies. And every year we plant the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. And it's not without recognition of the thousands of years of indigenous science that went into creating that polyculture. And I guess the last big statement is it feels so alive to say thank you and to practice. Like, For me to put those seeds into someone else's hands of corn, beans, and squash and go about planting them, knowing that we might be doing it differently, 
than was done here along the banks of the Sandy River in Farmington, Maine, but that we're putting out gratitude towards the fact that they're here, that those beings are even here, those three sisters, and recognizing that. And that's the celebration. And so that's where I feel like our work blends is in whatever shoulders we're standing on, we're going to celebrate those shoulders and give thanks. And the celebration is most powerful when in practice, when it's living practice. I appreciate that you share that because it was something that I was going to ask you about because in the rewilding circles and some other spaces, there are some concerns about the stories that are told about people of white descent who then gain knowledge from native and first people elders that we can't source or be able to go back to and speak to the person who shared this information with certain people and ask them about that experience and why did they choose to tell this to a young white man rather than a member of the native community. And so that is something that has been brought to my attention over the years and is sometimes of concern to me, as well as that cultural appropriation concern while also speaking with anthropologists and others about how culture is not a monolith. So how can we engage with all of these lessons and information and ideas in a way that is meaningful yet respectful? And from those conversations and what you were sharing and what I hear in your story is that you are giving credit to the peoples where those ideas come from, where that style of lodge comes from, where this building and this information originates, which is something that I know even within the permaculture community is one of the issues with some of the things that Bill Mollison wrote about is that it appears that they come from traditional cultures that were not properly credited. And so, yeah, I appreciate that you credit these communities and the peoples who you learned from and recognize that it is a mix of ideas that lead you to where you are now and where all of these different pieces come from. Because it is. I have one of Sandor Katz's books about fermentation from around the world. And it's easy to just go into my kitchen and make kimchi if I want to. But there is a peoples and a culture and a tradition where that food comes from. And as you say, it was that observation and that listening to the world around them that led to those techniques that were necessary to preserve food in that climate and the foods that were grown and things like that. So just I appreciate that you took the moment to share that with us. There's another piece beyond recognition, which is that in Maine today, there is a very active Wabanaki community. And this piece is a direction that we're now heading to figure out how we can begin to have a relationship just by showing up and doing work when there's an invitation to and building connections. Because Ultimately, I would love students in the longer programming that we do here or in any like programming to have these other voices speaking in their ears, voices that are ancestrally connected to this place. And you know, my teacher, Ray, is of European ancestry and also very acknowledged in some parts of the native community as an elder because of his life experience was so markedly different that he could never fit in to this world that we see. So anyway, our work of figuring out 
with the eventual goal of having teachers here if people are interested in teaching, that we're curating a space where knowledge can be shared and the mentors and the teachers can have that be of that cultural lineage. It's a doorway that we're trying to open right now. And I'll be really honest and say that it's a very volatile community in some ways in Maine. And so we're just going slow. And I really think the work we're doing is from a place of love. And I hope that people can see that. And one of the things that has been shared with me is that invitation to be places. And if we open the door and create the invitation for others to join us, then that creates opportunity. If doors are open and people invite us to join them in these capacities, as it sounds like Ray has had, then you know that's a really good starting place for all of us. While also understanding that if a door is closed or we are told that you are not welcome in this space, that as long as we can understand where that comes from and respect that, then you know that's okay too. And we are continuing to navigate hundreds of years of history and cultural damage that has been done, oppression that has occurred to various peoples. And when I was growing up, I think we're probably of similar ages, that in the 80s and 90s, the idea of like land back or inclusion of Native history and educational programs and things like that because of the colonizer's mindset just didn't exist. It's only been, from my experience in this world of environmental education and other spaces, really in the last decade, but really in the last five years where these conversations about cultural appropriation and what we can do to honor the cultures where knowledge comes from and these other pieces that we're touching on, that it is a, for those of us who were not steeped in those communities growing up, it is a relatively new conversation to have. And so we're still learning and navigating as we go and doing the best we can. Absolutely. And it's messy and we're all imperfect and that's how it is. And we're just going to keep inviting in those voices and also showing up where there's opportunity to be useful. And it might be a hundred years of people just needing to hear, we hear you. Because it was so ugly, the history in Maine, but across this whole continent of colonization is so ugly that it might just need to be like a hundred years of people saying, we hear that this was not acceptable. <laughs> and then at the same time, in the current moment, in the present, working on making change. And so if that's as far as we get, that's as far as we get in my lifetime. And if we get farther, then we get farther. But ultimately... I look around me, I look around at the beings. And so Ray always talked about the people. And that was in the beginning to my ears, my very modern ears, I would say, I want to learn about brown ash, say, or I want to learn about birch bark, or I want to learn about muskrat. He would say, you got to go get to know the people. And he'd say, well, why don't you go down there on the bank in the evening and watch the muskrat people? And you get to know them. And so it was really about listening and watching observing and seeing what they were doing. And eventually he would teach us if we wanted to live a subsistence lifestyle, which we were very keen on in that moment to trap and to eat and to tan the hides. But first it was about getting to know them. And eventually through a bunch of different experiences, I came to realize that I could no longer 
talk about like the pronoun it when describing a muskrat or describing a birch tree felt like a dirty word in my mouth. And I wanted to use pronouns that gave them personhood. And this is, of course, a very indigenous framework. And yet it landed and rooted in me in a way that I can't really part with. And we work with language here with our students. And since then, reading Robin Kimmerer, she really articulated this power that language holds to shape worldviews. And I started to say, aha, that is what was coming through Ray that rooted in my tongue that I couldn't let go of because it represented relationship. So where I'm getting with all of this is that if we're really to live here in this community, a community of the ecological community and the human community, if we're living well, if we're working with this space, we'll inevitably cross over into what could be called traditional ecological knowledge because we're working in the same bioregion. We can't not have relationships with the same people. But that doesn't mean that we're going to end up with the same culture. And that's actually something that I'm just so interested in right now is what is the potential, the possibility of incorporating this type of relationship with place as fodder for the creation of new cultures. So not cultures that are being appropriated, but cultures that are living well and wisely in this place. I guess that's really like the core of our work is this idea of cultural shift that I'm super interested in. There's a conversation that I had with some of my early mentors about permaculture because I originally found permaculture in the late 1990s as a response to crisis and disaster, a community-based approach, because being a teenager during that period, there was a back-to-the-land movement that was associated with some militia movements and things, and my friends and I in college did a lot of hiking and developing skills rather than relying on stuff and as we went through that process, we realized that this idea of an individualist approach to disaster preparedness or outdoor survival just didn't work. And that's how I found permaculture, because I was looking for just something where it's like, how can a community come together and create a response? And in doing that research, found permaculture, but I had read about it for 12 years before I finally took a PDC. So I took my permaculture design course. A year later, I was at a teacher training. And one of the conversations that arose there was seeing how big the umbrella of permaculture is, how much we can include more than just the landscape underneath of it. And being reminded of chapter 14 of Bill Mollison's designer's manual, which shows that there is so much more to permaculture than just the landscape, but so much of the writing was landscape-based that we didn't circle around to alternative economics and culture change. And we didn't circle around to things like alternative economics and the cultural shifts that are required in order to really ensure that we have not only permanent culture, but also permanent agriculture. A large part of my work the last several years and where some of these conversations on the show have been going is more about that culture change. And so I'm interested in hearing from you how you are doing this work in the moment and all the different pieces that you were managing? I think the easiest inroad to that might be to share a little bit about the understory and what it is we're doing with that program. And maybe that's going to bring us into that cultural 
shift conversation. So for many years now, we've been offering an apprenticeship program. And as I mentioned in the first part of the interview, I also spent many years as a semester teacher in outdoor context. And what we have been seeing in these last couple of years is that what we're really interested in offering, and we're working with some great teachers now, it's not just myself and my wife, and really my wife Ashira is no longer involved organizationally. She is on a different path of her own back in school and doing great work. Maybe it's the same direction, but through a different venue. So we were offering this apprenticeship and then it felt, you know, what we really want to do is craft these deeper learning experiences, cleaning the seeds and saving them for next year. But while we do that, we're listening either to a reading or to a podcast and having a discussion and having a really intentional educational experience that's crafted in the way that, so I went back to school. That's a part of my story I didn't share is that I went back to school in my forties, early forties to get a master's degree in environmental education. And for me, it was just like a blow off the roof moment of just getting to experience all of these different thought leaders that have written through the years and realize that we're a part of all of these traditions. And it's embarrassing really, you know, how it took me so many years to come to a greater awareness. And now, of course, the awareness is still small and growing, but of all the thought and work that's already out there and to join that body of work. And I'm all about like just being honest and saying, so it took me a while. <laughs> it took me a while because I was so invested in this place and in land and in crafting unique experiences for people. But what all of this sort of led to is this really strong desire to create a semester program that happens here at Maine Local Living School, and it's called The Understory. And The Understory refers to The Understory, for one thing, the generation of trees that are growing up through. And we work a lot in the forest on this program, and one of the core courses is applied forest ecology. And so we're working with a forest as the base of all life here, including managing for carbon sequestration and managing for forest food crops for humans and wildlife and including understanding how the blights and the climate shift and all of that is affecting this woodland that we live in and how we can best move a forest which has already had a whole lot of human impact in a direction that makes sense. And that was Chris Knapp of Maine Local Living School. Find out more about Chris, the school, and its programs, including the understory, at mainelocalliving.org. Chris will be back on the show for the second part of our conversation as we do a deep dive into the understory and what Chris and his fellow instructors seek to impart through this immersive homesteading and permaculture experience. If you have any questions that you'd like me to follow up with Chris about from anything in this episode, or from something that you've heard in the extensive archives of the Permaculture Podcast, you can get in touch with me by visiting thepermaculturepodcast.com, clicking on contact, and sending a message. Until the next time, spend each day deepening your sense of place while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. The Permaculture Podcast is a production of Permaneo Group. Find out more about the Permaculture Podcast, including the extensive archives, by visiting our website, thepermaculturepodcast.com. Learn more about Permaneo Group and other projects at permaneogroup.com.